Hi, you're about to listen to an episode of Borough Talks, a podcast from Borough Market. A very, very warm welcome to you. We're going to be bringing you a series of conversations around food and food culture with some inspiring guests and leading voices from the food industry. I'm your host, Angela Clutton. I really hope you enjoy listening to this episode of Borough Talks. And if you do, you can subscribe for more from us. Hello, everybody, and a very warm welcome to Borough Talks, which is Borough Market's podcast. I am Angela Clutton. I am your host, and I'm sitting here with a lady whose ears must have been burning for our last couple of podcasts because it's Henrietta Green, whose name has come up by quite a few of our guests, actually, recently. Henrietta, I don't know if you know, but Jeremy Lee, he talked about you. Uh, Tim Wilson, Ginger Pig, he talked about you. So we thought, well, we absolutely have to get the remarkable, legendary, in borough market terms, Henrietta Green on. So hi. Hi, and thank you. It's really, really nice to have you here. Actually, in honesty, we'd planned it anyway, hadn't we, to have you have you with us. It was just a bonus. That well, thank guys... you for inviting me. It's an absolute pleasure. And I think, um, well, we're going to talk about the whole breadth of you and what you do as a food journalist and broadcaster and the World Charcuterie Awards and all these many, many things that you're involved in. But we do have to kind of, you know, kick off certainly by talking about you and Borough Market, words which very much go together. Fill me in, really, fill everybody in about, well, about you and Borough Market. Let's really delve into it. Well... It all started, and I was desperately trying to remember, and I'm rather embarrassed that I can't, the name of um, one of the councillors who said, would I like to do a food festival? She knew about my work, um, that I was sort of very much connected with small speciality. Roughly what year is this, Henrietta? Oh, sorry. Okay. Um, It was 19... Well, the market was in 1998, so it must have been earlier that year or whatever. Okay. Actually, no... Can I go back a tiny bit earlier? I did the very first food market that I ever did, which was to celebrate the publication of my, Henrietta Green's, Food Lover's Guide. Uh And I was invited by the owners of St. Christopher's Place, which is this little alleyway between Wigmore Street and Otzer Street. I've always loved it. Right sort of behind Selfridges, isn't it? Yes, it's behind rather posh sort of boutique shops and things. And they were having Christmas uh, lights, etc. And they thought, why don't we do a bit of a food fair there? So I think I invited 25 producers to come along, all of whom I knew. And we had a fair there. And one of the people who was there was Randolph, Randolph Hodgson. And he was there selling cheeses from Neil's yard. And um, at the end of it, he said, God, that was good. And didn't we do well? He said, do you know what? He said, I'm moving to Borough Market. Would you like to come and do a food fair there? And I said to him, golly, where's that to my eternal shame? So this was in, what, 1995, 1996. And a few years later, possibly through Randolph, I got this invitation as part of the Southwark Festival that they wanted to sort of bring on the food in Borough Market. So let's set the scene a little bit because we've had on the podcast, I think twice now, Mark Ridway, who is a food historian who uh, works a lot with the market and did the Edible Histories book for the market. And he has been on the podcast a couple of times to talk about the history 
of Borough and of Southwark generally. And he you know, would, would make the point that there's been a, a, a market of sorts on that site for, you know, I think just over a thousand years. But obviously the ebb and flow of how that has gone has changed enormously. And I suspect for an awful lot of our listeners, the idea that in 1997-8, there wasn't an operating, exciting, thriving food market happening there probably just seems a little bit hard to kind of get your head around. But Absolutely what, ridiculous. What was happening on that site at well, that time? it was vegetables. So, I mean, the reason Wholesale. why... Wholesale. It was... The reason why it was located there was because it gave great access to Kent, which was the Garden of England. And I think some of the vegetables also earlier days came through via the Thames, sort of, and would land there. So it was a wholesale market and... I mean, when Randolph went down there, I obviously went down to see him and have a look and everything. And it was absolutely dead and quiet by 10 o'clock in the morning. It was a wholesale market for restaurateurs. I mean, not dissimilar to Covent Garden, not dissimilar to the good old days of um, Spitalfields, etc. And it was quiet. It had gone and everybody had gone home, yeah. except obviously... The, they were taking the orders and everything, and they'd start work about sort of, I don't know, 12 o'clock in the evening, earlier, whatever, and do their orders off to the restaurants, off to the... And, of course, in those days, I mean, a lot was very, very different. I mean, when I started working in food, supermarkets would go to Covent Garden to buy. The idea that they bought direct from growers was just about beginning to come in. And... Um, you know, and that obviously dealt quite a lot of problems to the wholesale markets. I mean, things were very, very different. By the 1990s, which we're talking about, when we looked at Borough Market, I mean, the market and the suppliers and the growers were still very busy and they had their cages and then they'd lock them up and the whole place would be sort of tumbleweed during the day. And the idea was to give it a bit of life to so by this time Brindisa were there as tenants but they were just sort of like round the corner they weren't actually on the market Randolph was there and I think probably they were about the only two right. and it looked, not Grovers not Turnips not any of those oh, guys no the vegetable people were okay. there but I mean talking about non sorry yeah. non-vegetable got you and of course there was the famous Sausages calf and, you know... I don't know about that. Tell me about... Maria. Oh, Maria. Maria. So Maria was there. Oh, Maria was there, There. but she wasn't in the market. She was opposite in the street, Story Street, opposite um, Randolph, opposite Neil's Yard Dairy. Monmouth Coffee. I think... Do you know, isn't it awful that I can't remember? I'm not even sure that whether... I think probably they had just opened their shop. Okay. Just round the corner. I mean, things were very, very different. Yeah. It was very tumbleweedy. Yeah. So they said to me, would I like to do a market? And I had done a couple of markets and I had a kind of idea about what to do about markets, where to get the stalls, etc., etc., and worked out that I could get 50 storeholders. So you started nice and small. Yeah. Yeah. Only well, f- only the 50. Only the 50. And I mean and where it was bears very little context to how the market is now okay. because it was all sort of rebuilt 
And um, so it was a rather cavernous and slightly sort of dank and dark. Sounds great. Dripping. There was quite a fair amount of dripping on you. What time of year were we doing this? Um, It was in November. Excellent. And so they wanted, well, they wanted, I said, I think 50 producers would be really, really good. And um, so I formed an advisory committee. And anybody who's ever um, knows set up an advisory committee or knows about advisory committee knows that you A, have to have an uneven number and three is too many. That is a uh, classic Henrietta Green line, which I have heard before and used and I have to say my husband uses as well. Every committee should be an odd number, three is too many. Absolutely brilliant. Okay, so yes, carry on. But anyhow, we were actually quite a few more than... um, than three. I think there were about seven of us. And I do remember in August, I think it was, so bearing in mind, not very far away, sitting around and talking about how many producers had booked in. So set the bar very low, wasn't going to cost very much money. The idea was to get an absolutely brilliant showcase of the best of British. And this is a one-off. One-off. A one-off. at that point nobody had ever suggested anything else one off great celebration and um, one of the uh, executives who was on the committee of then Food from Britain said oh don't worry we'll go out to the regional food groups and we'll recruit everybody and um, I could see everybody breathing a huge sigh of relief and something in me said no (laughs) And I swiveled around to look at me with absolute horror. And I said, no. And they said, well, I said, no, it's got to be of a standard. It's got to be the best. It's got to be really, really good. And they've got to be vetted. I, it's my market. I'm launching it. I want to vet them. So they kind of looked at me with slight sort of horror and everything. However... We did manage it. We did get 49 food producers plus one, who was Clarissa, darling dear Clarissa, who was there to sell books and nominally to look after Violet, my dog. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Let's let's talk about Clarissa. Well, Clarissa, Clarissa Dixon Wright, a fat lady. So I knew Clarissa... I first met her several years before when she started working at Books for Cooks just off the Portobello Road. I I used... I'm going to interrupt you very quickly because it just occurred to me. Some people might be listening and going, I can't believe she just called her fat. We should probably give some context as to why you called her a fat lady. Well, she was, Carissa, <laughs> the two fat ladies. They, they, well, that, that was their job. That was the show. That was in the books. We weren't, we weren't just being mean. No, we weren't body unkind. shaming her or anything. So the two fat ladies, so one the, of which was Carissa. And I had met her, as I said, she was working at Books for Cooks round the corner from where I lived. And that was Clarissa. And she was great because I always remember saying to her sort of a couple of weeks before the market, she was coming down, she was going to sell books. And um, she said, how's it going? And I said, well, I'm a little worried, you know, whether we're going to get enough people. Mm. And she said, why? And I said, well, I just don't know. 
And she said, well, what can I do? And bless her, she said, we'll open it. And, and by this time, they were not as big as they were ultimately to become, but they were pretty yeah. big. So she and Jennifer um, came down and opened it. There was a wonderful vision of um, Jennifer, who had very beautiful manicured hands, bright red nails, very long, sort of sitting there. We had got a goat for her to milk. Obviously. Trying to sort of milk it with these oh fingernails getting sort of... Anyhow, so I'm jumping ahead. So 49 producers from all over. Tim, obviously, he'd never even sold before. Right, so this is Tim Wilson and Ginger yes, Pig. Ginger so, um, I think we will get Tim back on to talk on his own because he came as part of the podcast to talk about the Frost Fair and so he was talking not just about him but uh, yeah, a wider conversation as well. But he was very interesting talking about the early days of the Ginger Pig at the market and I, you know, I because it wasn't a setup as a fraction of how it is now. No. You know, doing it out the back of a van, it had a butcher's block in the back of the van. And, you know, just it was very rough and tumble. And I remember he, he said to me that actually he hadn't long been in business and somebody who was working for him, I had spoken to them and I'd heard that their meat was good and interesting and sort of rare breed, mm. blah, blah, blah. And so I said, and I spoke to her and she persuaded Tim that they should come down and, and sell. And when I spoke to them, I said, look, bring heads big head, cheeks, yeah. whatever, the tails, any of the bits that you don't normally, will never sell them. I think they came down with three pig's heads and they wow. were gone within an hour. Really? You know, so it was that kind of sort of unusualness, the quality. I was looking for food that was perhaps a little different yeah. that you couldn't normally get. I mean, Randolph took a stand and I persuaded Randolph, one of my favorite producers is this wonderful lady who sadly is no longer making clotted cream butter from her tiny Guernsey herd in um, Cornwall and she clots the cream and then churns and then churns and makes some butter pats it with a Guernsey cow and it's just divine yeah and um I said to Randolph oh please stop that you know and I, th and I didn't rather stupidly say, "And we reserve one for me, and I'll come by." <laughs> and I think you got ten, and again they were gone within yeah. sort of five minutes. So, so anyhow, no, no, I was just you know, thinking that's well, in so many ways completely remarkable that you you do this one day uh, in a place where people haven't in its recent time been going to try and to, to get food. It's been as, as we just said, it's been wholesale only that for it to actually have to be imagined and then be realised that people were bothered about getting the best. And you're saying you were getting these you know, 49 plus one who were representing the best, what was happening. The best, different, unusual, there was somebody who was making uh, fruit, nut, vegetable, herb, paste from wild foods at Savanaka Forest. But was there enough going on in the food world at that point for for the to have any reason to believe those things would work, they would be popular. Well, yes and no. I mean, it's it's funny because in those ways, you, in those days, you didn't necessarily 
think about it like that. I mean, things were so very different. You know, there wasn't the internet, there wasn't mm. that kind of communication. But don't forget, I'd written The Food Lover's Guide and it had been a bestseller. Mm -hmm. People were beginning to okay. talk about it. A lot of the chefs were now sort of saying, we source this from here, we source that from there. Slow food was starting. So, yes, okay. there was so a there lot. There was a burgeoning. There was a lot going on. Okay. Farmers markets hadn't started well, yet. Well, let's get into that because, I again, I think you know, for me talking to you, and I'm therefore I would suspect quite a few people listening, it's not only hard to get your head around the fact that there wasn't a thriving retail market at Borough Market, but we're also used to going anywhere around Britain, certainly. And there are farmers markets, you know, you, you just do, you go to the countryside, it's a farmers market. I went to the States in, um, do you know, it's awful. I mean, when you get to my age, you can't remember when you went anywhere or whatever, you just forget it. But I went to the States, I think it must have been in the beginning of the 80s. And the first farmer's market, there were a couple, but the really big one and the interesting one was run by this amazing visionary called Barry Benepe, and it was the New York Green Market. Interestingly, Barry was not a foodie. He was an environmentalist. Mm. And if you think supplies in the UK were strangled then, it... It's nothing to what apparently was the States. Mm -hmm. So I was in New York and went to it and had long chats with Barry and came back here. And <laughs> this is a really good story. thought, we've got to have farmer's markets here. We've got to get them going. And went to see um, Professor Tim... Um, Tim Lang. Thank you. So, can I say that? So went to see Professor Tim Lang except he wasn't a professor then, who at the time was working for Ken Livingston at uh, GLC, and said, come on, Tim, let's start Farmer's Market. Nah. Right. Nah. Nah. So we could have had Farmer's Markets ages well. Prince Charles then took it up and was sort of rather keen to get them going. And in fact, the first, first Farmer's Market happened in Bath in 19... 90, uh, oh gosh, um, well, just after the first Barrow Market. Right. And um, it was, actually it was just before the first Barrow Market, I think it was in September when we did Barrow, and again was started by an environmentalist. Yeah. And I rang the food programme and said, come on, let's go and do something. And we did actually, I persuaded them to go down and to record the very first farmer's market ever in the UK. Right. So there was a sense, I mean, I wouldn't say that I was working alone. There were yeah. other people. But it was this whole thing about sort of the integrity of the food, the quality, the relationship to the land. This was all beginning to happen. And it, when I say the quality, it's about the food it's about the and it's about the purity of it which i mean yes you had to compromise to a certain extent quite a few times but you know with a certain reluctance admittedly but um you know we were talking about you know proper proper pork pies melton mowbray pork pies proper ones made with the proper ingredients and made in the proper way you know, and 
what has always interested me about food is what is the proper way? Yeah. What is the right way to do it? And and in many ways, it's never quite as simple as that. I mean, just jumping forward, a really interesting thing happened to me a few weeks ago. I went to this frightfully trendy, very new farmer's farm shop in the House and Worth one just outside. Oh, right. You okay, know, I know what you mean. Really yeah. good. And House and Worth have for ages run a herd of various rare breed cows and I think pigs as well. I mean, but certainly beef. And um, they've now... Now that they and they used to have the restaurant and they used to cure for charcuterie, etc. Now they've got the shop. And I was talking to the butcher and he told me that they now have their own brassola. Oh god. And made from their animals. And he gave me a packet to try. And it was absolutely stunning. Beautiful, great unami flavours, a real sort of bite to it, something you really, really would want to eat. And they weren't making it at the time. They were putting the beef out to a maker. And I happened to see the charcuterie maker a few weeks after that. And I said, golly, I had one of your products and it was absolutely sensational. And I gathered, you know, you make it. And we talked a bit about it. And he said, well, actually, we make it for ourselves under our brand. But we don't use the same animal. So I said, oh, it'd be really interesting to try. Tried it. It was perfectly pleasant. But didn't have that wow factor. Didn't have that depth. And I think what that demonstrates so often is the difference, the difference in methods. There's no right or wrong way. I mean, you can use really expensive, um, really expensive meat and create, absolute ugh. you know you can use a cheaper cut from a cheaper beef that hasn't been that well raised or that well fed and actually get a very good product so it's the whole chain of mm. quality that has always always excited and interests yeah. me and it was actually david lidgate many many years ago greater butcher who said to me quality is a chain and Every link in that chain yeah. has to be in place. Oh, I like that. Quality is a chain. That's very good. And what I was interested in all those years back is getting a chain yeah. of real quality producers. Yeah. So did you feel on that first, was it a Saturday, the first one? No, it was a Friday. Was they a Friday. insisted that I opened it for three days. Right. Okay, so you did, they did the weekend. So we did the Friday because they wanted to make sure that the local office workers were able yeah. to come and and the Saturday and the Sunday. And do you want to know how I felt at five minutes to ten because it was opening at ten o'clock? Oh, o my goodness. It was absolute nightmare. Yeah. There I was in, forgive me, Barrow Market, this sort of rather dank, drippy... I love that about... Any any corner that I can find at market that's still like that. I love the railway girders and I, lo I love what the cobbles. Oh, I mean, it was completely different. Yeah. It, you know, so there I was sort of, and I remember I was wearing my very smart, I thought, camel coat. <laughs> and it was sort of being dripped with this sort of grungy rain sort of on the way down. There I was and I looked at all these producers 
who had these sort of rather eager, keen faces. A lot of them had never sold to the public, had never, ever sold. They were taking a punt. They didn't know. They were... And I thought, well, I won't say exactly what I thought, but I thought, you know, I'm responsible for this. I am going to be lynched. They are going to kill me. And But it went well. Well, about three or four producers had bought what they thought would be enough to see them through the weekend. And they'd sold up by 12 o'clock that morning. So let's crack on slightly. So the first weekend went well. People sold out. First weekend went well. And just one other thing that I'd like to add about the weekend. It was really, really good. And you know who um, said, I'm going to come and run a cafe for you? Fergus. Fergus Henderson. Oh, really? And he set up a cafe for us, which was absolutely great. Exactly the kind of sort of feel that you you were hoping for. You know, started off with a bit of seed cake in the morning with a bit of cheese and then it rolled on. I mean, you know, what a great start. Yeah. So when was the next one? After that, they said, great, thanks. So they did, I don't know. Right, Okay. So, so you, so you, so you did that that weekend, and then that was, then that sort of started an energy. But you weren't directly involved after that. No. Okay. Fine. Got it. Um, but it, that, but that's no doubting that was the absolute catalyst for, I, everything kind of coming from that. I would have thought so, and I mean there were certain values that I really did want to sort of um, stress. Yeah. And to me. At the time, it was important to have a showcase for British produce. Yeah, yeah. And that was unique. Yeah. Um, and interestingly, though, I had gone to all the greengrocers, all the wholesalers, and asked them whether they'd like to take part. Only one of them, Fred Turnips, opened. The other said, nah. It's interesting, isn't it, how many of these names that you're saying are still around? Like Maria's only stopped. She only retired last year. Yes. Um, turnips obviously still going, you know, thriving. Neil's Yard, fundamental. Monmouth, you know, Brindiza, you know, these uh, ginger pig, obviously. You know, the Melton Road Pie. The the, the, the the things we're talking about. So many of them are still yes. still very Fish much God, in the core. Is now back again. Yeah. Yeah, with his yeah. charcuterie and uh, furnace fish and yeah. the venison and the cider people. Actually, it was really interesting because. You know, you don't really document. And I was trying to put a list together of the 50 who came. I'd love to, I'd love to see that. Uh-huh. Anyway, I'm curious to get your take on the food landscape through this period. We're talking about 98, and obviously you were involved before, as you say, you know, best-selling book and clearly very, very plugged into what's happening. I'm really interested in your take about how the food landscape has evolved since that kind of 98 time as to, and, and to where we are now. Not just about the market, I mean, you know, broader than that as well. Well, I think where we are now is actually quite curious, frightening and evolving because I think we're in such turmoil at the moment and I think so many people are really quite frightened about their ability to carry on, to earn money in the way that they used to. And so that in terms of food shopping and food cooking and what ingredients you buy, um, I think there's an emphasis much more 
on price and much, and by an inconsequence, less concentration on the quality, which is completely understandable, if not completely desirable. And, um, you know, you say to anybody, you do a questionnaire, how important is it for you to buy local food? And they say, yes, 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 yes. Put the two examples in front of them price-wise, they'll probably go for the cheaper one, and who would blame them? And um, the, the other thing which is also very curious is amongst the young, there's sort of, this, again, there seems to be a division between the young who are really keen on cooking and spend an awful lot of time cooking and those who eat out the whole time and buy ready meals. And, you know, so I think it's all a bit of a mess. The thing also that does worry me is that the stranglehold of the multiples. You know, I haven't looked at figures recently to know exactly, I don't know whether you know, exactly what percentage of food is is sold and handled and sold by the multiples as opposed to independent mm. retailers or markets. Um, but I suspect it is an increasing upward. Mm. And certainly we saw the impact of that during the early lockdowns when... The, you know, the the way the supply chain works into supermarkets well, didn't work, and that you know, the the shelves were yeah, uh, empty em, and empty of things. Whereas certainly Borough Market and small producers they ha- had their produce needs still very much there, and you know, wanted to have that direct access to the consumer. Well, I was quite lucky. I was actually shielded during the first lockdown, and a friend of mine um, used to go to farmers market, which my local one in London, um, Queen's Park, and do my shopping for me. And so I did quite well. And I mean, that was all there was mm. to spend your money on, so it didn't really matter. But it's interesting, wasn't it? I felt that we had... A, there, was a, there was a moment during those lockdowns when people who had, who had the, you know, the, the option to do this in terms of income were more interested than ever before about where their food came from. And suddenly British cheeses and fish and meats and things were being much more directly accessed. And people were were really excited about the provenance. But it hasn't lasted. It has not lasted. And I I do feel to some degree we, we, a very large we, all of us who work in food, we sort of missed an opportunity. In there. what sense do you think that? Well, not grabbing that moment of interest. Now, I know other factors obviously have come into play, not least that people's pockets are being squeezed in a way that uh, makes choice incredibly hard to have. But I'm not sure that we are we have done enough or do do enough to stress the importance of... It's not just romantic stories about why these things matter in terms of how we feed ourselves and environmentally and people's jobs. Yes, I mean, in in societal terms, I mean, it's hugely important that we keep those kind of traditions and create new ones and and for our economy and our local economy and to keep the money circulating. But it is quite hard. And, you know, go to my farmer's market and you see the price of some of the produce and you think, are they kidding? Yeah. I mean, how many people can afford to do it? And I think also one of the things that does upset me slightly about the farmers markets that I go to, particularly in London, I think less so, is how elitist they are. That, um, I mean, my local one, Queen's Park, um, 
it's in the playground of a school. And it's interesting that the programmes that you might have hoped would have been developed, similar to what Barry was trying to do all those years ago in New York, have not been achieved taking the children out to see how things grow. It should be compulsory. Have a stall there. You have to have farm visits so that you make those connections. Yeah. So, I mean, that is so important. I don't know if you ever had the chance to do it, Henrietta, but there's uh, an organisation called School Food Matters. Yes. Who I've you know, had the joy of doing a couple of things with through Borough Market, actually, where you go into a school and you sort of encourage, excite, enable uh, a class of kids to to become market traders for the day and they might come down and they're doing soup or something and it just always gives... And and so then they they do come into the market and they are traders for the day with the soup or whatever they've made. And those things are always just so exciting because it is just trying to get that connection and understanding in. It's making the connection, which I think is so important. But then, actually, then you look at one of the trends that's going on now. You look at lab food. Yeah. You know, and you think, golly, what's going to happen there? I mean, if you can grow it there. But I, one thing I was going to say, and I remember sort of going back to one of my great heroes, was Jane Grigson. Yeah. And Jane, who used to write for The Observer and used to go to sort of training around the country, and we used to sort of swap food finds and, you know... And um, so that was the very first book that I did in 1986 and uh, was British Food Finds. And it was full of sort of small producers that um, we had, um, that I had found and with some help from Jane and sadly Jeremy Round, who was another great food writer. And um, and that had great support. Um, and Sorry, I'm going off track, but there's another no, no. story that the great chef Pierre, Pierre Goffman, and Pierre got a book and he used to ring me up every week and tell me what he'd ordered from whom and complain about some of the quality. He says, ah, he'd found this duck producer that said, he said, in France, they would have thought it was great to be supplying me. And they'd really done, they said, after three weeks, pa, no. And you just think, oh God, the English, it's so shaming. But, like, but one of the things I think, it's one of the re- many reasons I wanted to get you onto the podcast, Enretta, was because I think you are incredible, really, at getting stuff done, but also about seeing what things matter and when. And that was true about the market and markets generally. And I think we asked to just sort of move slightly on to talking about charcuterie, because it's not too long ago, the idea of British charcuterie would have raised more than a few quizzical eyebrows. Joke. Joke, yeah. You know, and now it's something which is you know, just accepted as being a thing and people are very proud of it. It's very delicious, certainly at the market. There's you know, more than a few people who are doing it. Um, t- just talk to me a little bit, Henrietta, about British charcuterie and, and, and how it has kind of grown. Well, if I can correct you, Dara. Oh, no, do, please, do. <laughs> Dara, please, please. <laughs> Slightly. So the fact is we've always made charcuterie. Ham, bacon have always this, made yeah. them. What has happened and what's changed hugely is that we now make it in the continental style, which is a lot to do with air drying. And obviously our climate has mitigated against it. Two things have happened. First, we've had global warming, which has made it easier. Secondly, there's been the invention of some really good machinery, the drying cabinets, humidity, etc etc so that's helped hugely um and 
I remember many years ago doing writing a piece, researching and then writing a piece for BBC Good Food on the North Norfolk coast. And somebody said to me, you have got to go. And there, completely disappeared now, in the middle of a little passageway in Wells, was this young lad who was making salamis. I thought, he's absolutely barking mad. But he went on, completely disappeared. And I've been trying to find out, can't even remember what his name is, but he was the very first person that I ever saw then making them. And then various other people sort of came to it. And I, throughout my life, without probably, without my career, without probably knowing it, I have worked as what a marketeer called food futurologist. I was going to include that in the introduction, but I thought I won't be able to say it. Food futurologist. <laughs> so I've been quite keen and, dare I say it myself, able to predict trends. Yeah. And again, having been around a long time, it does help. Because if you think back to cheeses 25, 30 years mm. ago, they were a joke, British farmhouse cheeses. And now look at them. Mm. They're world leaders. They're great. There's a vibrant trade, mm. both here and abroad, or certainly mm. pre-Brexit there was. Mm. And so when charcuterie came up, that's exactly the same. We're behind in terms mm. about 25 years. But I saw, and I saw there were people starting to make it and how it was growing. So I looked and saw this development and thought, that's fun. I've always loved it, always enjoyed it. Yeah. And, you know, and I'd like to think that having started the British Charcuterie Awards, that it made a difference. Yeah. Without, without a shadow of a doubt. And, you know, and there are, there are challenges. Yeah. It's not easy. The quality can be, at times, a little challenging. Um, there are some excellent products. Yeah. But, again, it was like cheeses in the early days. There are the small quantities, price, etc. And I would love to see more help and more encouragement from the government and the ministry. Do you know Capriolas are now at the market? I do indeed, yeah, yeah, yes. Yeah. Which is, and I think that they, like an awful lot of the traders and producers generally who do this, they want to share their knowledge and let people know what it is. Because it, cause I think... In, in the food world, British charcuterie is something which people have very much got their heads around, but maybe not the buying public quite so much. And it's interesting because within Borough Market, there's some very, very good um, French, Italian, mm. and um, the Spanish, obviously, Brindisa, and all the, f- all the foreign charcuterie producers will cut and slice to order. Mm. And one of the things that I think has got to start happening is with to really engage the British public is, again, the producers and the shops and the deli, in in the same way the Italians, Spanish, whatever, that they'll cut and slice. And it's a much more appealing offer than the pre-sliced packs. It's interesting you say that, Henrietta, because when Tim Wilson, Ginger Pig, was here, we were talking uh, about... The, certainly the early success of the ginger pig being as much about him offering theatre as, as offering fantastic produce and that people liked the show of what he was doing. And I was at Brindisa at uh, some point last autumn and uh, I was 
I got the opportunity to have a go at carving the ham on. And and it's what we're talking about, that connection, isn't it? I think if you see somebody doing it, taking it off the joint, obviously that connection is all all the stronger. And it evolves. And you also think it's being prepared for you, so it's special, and the way that it drops down onto the paper. Whereas so many... And I can understand why, but it's the same way as sort of pre-wrapped cheeses all those years ago and now you'll go to the cheese counter and they'll cut you the slice so it'll happen and you know stage by stage it's still quite a small proportion but it is this whole thing of sort of adding value which in terms of the British producers is very important but you know we are competing against hugely um, funded, well-established, and great quality continental mm. supplies. One of the things that I do find very interesting, actually, with some of the continental charcutiers, is that they've been making it for years, and they make it in exactly the same way. Mm. Whereas with our makers, who are coming to it with less hidebound by tradition, so that they're looking at new flavours, yeah. methods, you know, they're more experimental. Yeah. And, I mean, if you think, again, wine is another example. If you think we now win World Cups, Absolutely. it'll happen. Yeah, It'll happen. And I'd like to think that the support that British and now the world, um, it's going to yeah. be sooner than we think. Yeah, Absolutely. Henrietta, I feel that we could sort of sit and sit and talk and talk. And and in some sense, we have only scratched the surface. But I consider myself someone who, you know, knows Borough Market pretty pretty well after having had the privilege to do lots of work with them over the years. But having that extra kind of insight, and very personally so, from you into what it was like when you, you know, was very first having this regeneration of a retail market is extraordinary. And also, I think I'd like to say thank you. Because you, know, you did do those days which set it off on this wonderful path, which gives an enormous amount of pleasure to an enormous amount of people, let alone being part of a kind of you know, reburgeoning the British food scene and, as we say, you know, jobs and skills and those things as well. So real, real pleasure to talk to you, Henrietta. Well, thank you for asking me. Lovely to have you here. Um, the World Charcuterie Awards are wheeling themselves around soon. Um, and if anyone would like to know more about World Charcuterie, British Charcuterie, the website is a pretty good place to go to, isn't it? To sign up for our newsletters. Sign up for the newsletter. Find out more about wonderful suppliers. Um, and if you do find yourself at the market, do talk to the Capriolis guys because they'll be very happy to talk to you about what they do as well. And also visit the Continental ones as yeah. well. Yeah. Whose quality is immaculate yeah. as well. Yeah. yeah. Really interesting. And um, long may Borough Market chime. Excellent. Lovely to see you, Henrietta. Thank you. Thanks for joining us today. We'll be back with more Borough Talks soon. A reminder that Borough Market is now open seven days a week. For those who can't make it down here, you can still enjoy the best of Borough at Borough Market online with nationwide delivery. You can head to our website for more information, subscribe to our newsletter. There are lots of recipes and features on the Borough Market traders.